Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and this is the weekly sermon from Gateway Community Church. We're excited to be able to share inspiring and meaningful messages to help you grow in Christ. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. Now let's dive into God's Word together with this week's message. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you today. As Adam said, I am uh, Pastor Mike Coote, the lead pastor over at Cornerstone Church. I've been ministering over in Cornerstone for about four years now, but it's good to be here with you this morning. Greetings from uh, your brothers and sisters there. I'm going to read with you God's Word in in just a minute here, but before we do that, just a a bit of an introduction, Um, and and maybe I'll get at it by sharing a little bit from... um, from Barbara Brown Taylor. This is an, she was an excellent theologian and a pastor. Uh, she, she wrote a book some years ago called Speaking of Sin, and she relays this story. I want to share this with you for a minute. Uh, she says, Last summer, I sat on the stoop of a souvenir shop in Greece with the owner who bemoaned the decline of the Greek language on the world scene. He said, for example, what the world calls the Olympic Games are no such thing. These, are, these events are not play, he said. They are not sport. So Taylor asked him, well, what are they then? He said, I cannot tell you in English. The Greek equivalent for what happens at, at the Olympics has no English equivalent. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I mean, my mom and dad grew up in the Netherlands. They moved here. Some, I remember having similar kinds of conversations with my, my parents, my mom in particular, about all these little Dutch sayings that she had. Somehow they didn't quite... They didn't quite translate into English properly. Even, I don't know, take the word gezellig. How many of you know that word? Gezellig. For any, right? What is it? It means sort of comfy or, you know, comfortable, cozy. But that's not quite it, is it? When you, you know, there's something kind of missing from that word. Hard, really hard to express in English. But you know it when you experience it. You just say, oh, this is gezellig, Right? Well, Barbara Brown Taylor says, in the same way, she says, I believe that there are Christian, words in the Christian language that have no equivalent in any of the other languages that we speak. And she uses three languages, other languages that we speak. She talks about business, law, and psychology. And what she says is when we lose these religious words, right, we lose the hold that they have on our realities, Right? And what they represent. So, for example, she says, sin doesn't, doesn't translate simply as rule-breaking any more than it translates as psychosis. Right? It's a deeper and a bigger word than that. And if, if she says, if we drop it from our vocabulary, then our language and our experience will be diminished. Now, I, I share all of that with you because I would argue that it's the same thing with many of the other Christian words that we use. Things like, like not just sin, like salvation, atonement, covenant, faith, forgiveness, even love to some extent. And without those words in our Christian vocabulary, and then all of the stories that surround the biblical stories that we, we use to fill those, those, those words with meaning, if we don't use all of that stuff, something in our faith gets diminished and even lost. And, and the reason I share this all with you is because I think that's what the book of Exodus does for us. Is it gives us this language of faith 
It gives us the stories and begins to give us these stories that fill up that language and what they mean. Particularly these three words, sin, salvation, and service. Okay? And to my mind, that's what this story that we're about to read this morning is going to really help us to do. Particularly to get our heads around the idea of sin and salvation. Okay, you guys talked about, I think, uh, you've talked about service already, the avodah, right? I think Pastor Justin talked to you about that. So we're going to get after it. I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible with you today, to open your Bible with me. And we're going to read from Exodus 12. Okay, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 13. And then we're going to skip over to 21 to 23 and skip down then to 29 to 30. And uh, I believe that's on the screen behind me, but otherwise you can follow along in a Bible. And this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take them until... Uh, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some blood, some of the blood, and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water but over, roasted over a fire with the head and the legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you, you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hands. Eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of the people of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And now skipping down to 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top uh, and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of your door until morning. When the Lord goes through uh, the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And now to 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, um, what happens 
in this chapter that we just read, it is the very centerpiece of both like the Jewish and the Christian faith. You know that, right? It's, this is called, we call it Passover. And of course, as, as Christians, we celebrate Passover as Jesus kind of modified it and revised it, but it's, it's rooted right here in this story that, that, that we just read. And it is the central act of worship in both the Christian and the Jewish faith, and it's what makes our faiths and what makes our God unique is this. Because look at what happens at the center of this central act. At the center of the center, it's, what is it? It's the bloody death of an innocent and helpless victim, right? There is no other religion in the world that's like that. There's none. Now, some, some would say, some people would say, maybe even some of you would say, well, that's probably nothing that we should be proud of. But listen, if you've heard that or that's something that you've said, let me tell you this, that's probably just because you don't really understand what, what this all means. And so that's what we want to explore today, the meaning of this scene that is the center of the center and it has all to do with sin and salvation. So I, what I want to do is I just want to start with the story itself and consider this really, really big question, very broad question what on earth is going on here in this passage? Because you know what? It's a little bit bewildering when we actually take some time and we stop and, and we think about it, right? Because here's what I mean, right? This is, this is it. You guys have been talking about the plagues, right? You've been talking about the book of Exodus. You've been ramping up to this point. This is it. This is the final plague. God has been calling Israel to release the, or Pharaoh to release the Israelites. And what is it that he's been saying? Let my people go that they may serve me or worship me in the wilderness, right? Let my, do you remember that? That they, that they may avodah me. Is that, that's what Pastor Justin talked about. And Pharaoh, right, he's thought about it some. He's hemmed and hawed about it. He's like gone back and forth on it. First he says, I'm going to let my people go, let them go. And then he goes back on it. And it's, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Sometimes it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But then what happens? So, so we've got through nine plagues. We come to this final plague. This is the final stroke. And what is it? Verse 12 tells us that he's going to strike down the firstborn. Right, every a male of every household, both animals and 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 people, and how is that going to happen? Well, verse twenty three. This is what it says: When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and both sides of the doorframe, and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. The destroyer, very, very, very important. Okay, but we're going to take that concept for a second of the destroyer that what what that we pointed out just, and we're going to park it for a minute. All right, so because I, I have to talk about something else for us to understand what's going on there. All right, so we're going to spend a few minutes talking about sin and what sin actually does to us. I don't know if you've talked about this before already in this in this series, but what do we know about sin? We know that sin breaks our relationships, right? It breaks relationships between one another, you know, from you to your, your spouse or your friend or whatever it is. It, it breaks those, but it also breaks our relationships with God. But that's not all, actually. According to the scriptures, sin or our disobedience, and that's what all sin is, it's a disobedience to God. 
what that does is it actually unleashes the forces, the disintegrating forces of chaos in our lives. That's actually what it does in our world. When we disobey the world around us, including our personal sorts of worlds, it starts all to get unmade and uncreated. Now, I realize that's not a concept or a way of thinking about sin that we're used to, but it's, it's biblical, right? So what happens is our lives start to go back to that pre-creation chaos, and it happens in this very kind of natural way, okay? Now, I, I didn't watch all of Just, Pastor Justin's sermons on the plague, so I don't know if he brought this out or not, but I don't know if you've noticed, right? When you went through the plagues, did you notice how natural they all seemed and how they just sort of natural, there was a sort of natural progression of the plagues. I don't know if you talked about this. But let me show you, right? Think about this. The first plague is what? The Nile gets smitten, right? It turns to blood. It, essentially, what, what's happened is that the Nile has died, okay? The god is of the, the Nile is dead and all of that stuff, but nobody can drink from the, the Nile, and the ecosystem of the Nile is wrecked. So what happens as a result of that? All of the other plagues are kind of like a consequence of the Nile dying. Just watch. I mean, what happens? The Nile and its marshlands and all of that stuff is dead and, and it, it's not a, a habitat any longer. So what happens? All the frogs start coming out. And it's really cooking hot in Egypt. So when these, these frogs start, zillions of frogs start coming out of the Nile, they can't survive for too long outside of that water and they start dying off. And what happens when frogs die, when anything dies? Well, you get a plague of gnats and you get a plague of flies, right? That's what happens because that, that's the natural thing that happens. They help to break those things down. It's a natural consequence. We're talking about an ecological disaster here. So then what comes next? Plagues five and six, these are epidemics. Epidemics based on all the dead carcasses that are laying around. One is that livestock gets sick and they get destroyed. And then, and then the next one is, is that the people get affected with skin diseases and boils and those kinds of things. It's not clean because of all the dead stuff. And it goes on from there. Things are breaking down. But now think about this. And this is where, where kind of where my thinking took me when I was thinking. Because this is supposed to be against Pharaoh, right? This is to, to that Pharaoh will know who God is, and he'll let his people go, right? So if, if God, all God wanted to do was show Pharaoh how powerful he was, and he was so much more powerful than Pharaoh, don't you think there could have been a better way to do it a little bit quicker and that sort of thing? Um, because these plagues, they just seem so natural, you know? So here's what I'm getting at. If all Pharaoh wanted to do was show God how, you know, or all God wanted to do was show Pharaoh how powerful he was, he could have saved everyone a lot of time and grief and just done one really, really big miracle. You think about it, right? I mean, God can do anything. So he could have had Moses stride right in to Pharaoh's presence and into his, you know, into, into the throne room of Pharaoh. And he could have just said, to, he just, with his staff, just turned anybody, everybody that's there into flowers. And, and, Pharaoh would have been like, what? What's going on? This is crazy. And then, you know, Moses could have said, Pharaoh, you're next. And Pharaoh would have been freaking out. And, and probably that would have been the end of it. You know, let the Israelites go. So why does God do it the way that he does it? Well, there's a number of reasons. But one of them is that he is showing Pharaoh and he is showing us something. 
is scholars for, for years have pointed out that these, these plagues are the undoing of creation, right? They are, they are nature reverting back to that, that pre-creation chaos. You go back to Genesis 1, right? And, and what does it say at the beginning? It says that the earth was formless and void. And those words in Hebrew are tohu vabohu, Cool words, right? They sound kind of cool together. Essentially, what it said, what that is, though, is it's that it was a swirl of chaos. That's what God's getting at there. And what does God do? He reaches into the chaos, that swirl of chaos, and he begins to make a world. At first, he forms it all, you know, the, the sea and the sky and the land and all of this stuff, and then he fills it with stuff. Right? He's, it's, so it's forming and it's filling and it's, it's the ski, the, like everything is, is working together. The plants and the animals and the weather, you know, he, he takes that, that chaos and he makes a coherent whole. That's what he does in, in creation. So that, 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 that creation at the beginning is characterized by harmony, it's characterized by shalom, things work together the way that they're supposed to. And what we see happening in the plagues is the undoing of that, the opposite of that, right? Every day of those plagues, creation is being undone so that, that the weather doesn't work with anymore, but works in, instead to destroy the livestock. And, and insects don't work, but they, they don't work with, but they destroy the plants until you get to the end and all you've got is darkness. Just like the darkness at the very beginning. Right? Darkness was over the surface of the deep, is what it says in Genesis 1. Okay? So this is what God is saying with that. What he's saying is, the way that I've made the world and my power and my laws that I've baked into the world, right? this stuff is not arbitrary. I didn't just like make it up. I didn't make it to make your, do it to make your life hard. And, and, and I am not just exercising my power in this sort of bare and raw form just, just to show how powerful I am. What I want to do is teach you that to disobey me is to unleash the forces of chaos and disorder in your life and the world. Okay? You are, when you sin and disobey, you are violating the very fabric of your being and the very fabric of creation. And when you do that, your life begins to disintegrate. It's true. I, mean, I want you to think about this, okay? What's the, the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, say you were to break that first commandment, which we all do almost every day, but you break that first commandment, and now I put work in that, that spot where this is the most important thing in my life. What starts to happen to your life? Well, you're probably going to start to overwork. You're going to become a workaholic if that's the most important thing. You're going to do that too much. And what's going to happen? Your family life is going to suffer. And your wife and kids or your husband and kids or whoever it is are going to start complaining that you're not around anymore. And that's probably going to stress you out. And plus, on top of that, this added stress from, from all the work that you're doing, what's going to happen is your mental health is probably going to decline you're not going to do very well. And when your mental health starts to decline, it's not long until your physical health starts to decline. You're going to have, start to have problems with your heart or whatever it happens to be. What you are, what's happening? You're coming apart. You're beginning to disintegrate because you didn't follow the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The point is, is that God's judgment on disobedience is it's, it's natural. It's natural. 
It's natural. The way that we start to, to, right? It's natural. Except for in the passage that we read this morning. Okay? Except for there. Right here in Exodus 12. When God says that he has, now we're going to unpark that destroyer. When he says that he's sending his destroyer, this is something very, very different. When God sends his destroyer, he is giving us a foretaste of judgment, of judgment day. He is kind of fast forwarding to judgment day and, and, and justice, his divine, his divine justice is being, being meted out. But only, only for a day. It's temporary Okay, it's temporary, it's introductory. And the destroyer comes. Now here's what I want you to think about. That destroyer is sometimes referred to, we refer to him colloquially as the angel of death. Even though that, that word and that phrase is actually never found in scripture at all. Okay, we sometimes call him the angel of death. But, but this destroying angel, what we have to know is he actually comes at other times in Scripture as well. So in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 15, that talks about uh, God sending an angel of destruction to destroy King David and Israel. Why? Because King David has just done what God told him not to do. He has counted his fighting men. Why is that so bad? Well, it's because essentially what David is doing is flexing his muscles. He's saying, look how powerful I am. You know, to the people of Israel and to the people all around, he's looking, I am powerful, when he full well knows that his power and his success has only come as a result of the Lord. Right, but he takes that on himself, and so, and and when he does that, the destroyer comes, and it says that it, the destroyer of those of those those men that he was counting, the destroyer wipes out seventy thousand of those men, and then it says this in verse sixteen, David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, with a drawn sword in his hand, extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell down, fell face down, so they're repenting, and the angel of this. This angel relents, right? So that's another one of these. Another one of the scenes happens in 2 Kings 19, verse 35. This is now Sennacherib, who is the Assyrian king, and he has been sweeping down through all of, of Israel and taking out every city that's in his path, and, and he's right up to the doorstep of Jerusalem, and he's laying siege to Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah is freaking out, and he gets down on his knees, and he prays to the Lord with all the elders for God to save them, and God sends again this destroyer, and this is what it says. This is what, what happens. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. So here's my point. Here's what I'm getting at. This destroyer is the most destructive force that the world has ever known. Nothing is stronger than this destroyer. And this destroyer is about to, in our story, cut down millions, probably millions of living beings, animals, children, right, firstborn. And, and what does that mean? Does it mean, like, if you're a firstborn and you're 45, does that mean you? Well, maybe it does. Probably, so we're talking about a lot of people, and it's, it's Israelites and Egyptians both. And this destroyer is coming, and he's going to do this, and you're going to be wiped out if you're a firstborn, unless what? Unless... A lamb. What? You, thought, you think about that? But 
what is that? How does that work? Right? I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be irreverent here, but the most destructive force that the world has ever known is going to be stopped, right, by the meekest, most innocent, silly, fluffy little animals there are. How does that work? I mean, that doesn't make any sense when you stop to think about it. At least not from our perspective, our, where we stand in history, right? But I think, friends, that's actually because that's, it's where we stand in history. That's, that's kind of the problem here. Okay, so, so I want to, I wanna, we're going to move. What I want to do now is I want to look at, and I know there's a lot of threads. They will come together, I promise. We'll pull them all together. But what I want to do is I want to look at this idea of the lamb in the broader context of the, hist- of the history of the Bible and the, and the way that the Bible unfolds, okay? I want to trace that through, through Scripture. So the rabbis tell us, these are the Jewish rabbis, they have this, this rule of interpretation that they call, um, uh, they call it the principle of first occurrence, Okay? And so what the principle of first occurrence is, is that the first time a word uh, shows up in the Hebrew Bible, it kind of controls the way that we use that, that in other places throughout Scripture. Okay? It, gives, it sheds lots of light on, on what it is that this means. And so the first time that the word lamb is used in Scripture is in Genesis 22. Does anybody know what the story of Genesis 22 is about? Shout it out. Go ahead. What's that? Isaac. That's what's right. It's Abraham and Isaac going up Mount Moriah because God has told Abraham, you need to sacrifice your first and only son to me. You got to sacrifice him, right? Which is, I mean, it's, it's a terrible story in some, part, in some ways. This is, this is a story that most of us, we, we don't like it. We don't like that it's in our Bible. It's, it's distasteful to us, it seems, and, and, and very, very alarming, it's where our culture gets this idea that our God is this, this angry, capricious God who asks his people to do really, really monstrous things all the time. Um, or at least it's, it's one of the places that our culture gets that idea. But you know what? That's not how Abraham saw it. It's not how the, 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 the Israelites who first were reading this, it's not the, how, they, how they would have seen this either. Without a doubt, Abraham would have been disturbed by it, the people of Israel would have been disturbed by it, but not simply for the reasons that you and I are disturbed by it, okay? Because here's the thing, there's a number of things about Abraham's culture that are very unique that we don't share, and they, they shed light on all of this. So for example, we live, friends, in the most individualistic culture possibly imaginable. The most individualistic culture our world has ever, ever known, all right? And that is not Abraham's culture. Abraham has a, like a collectivistic culture, they, right? They, they're more balanced. It's not so much the individual in his culture, but it's the family, so what you wanted to do as a family leader was your, you wanted your family, the whole family, to be successful, right? That prosperity of that family, much less the individual. So, like, I want to try to get our heads around this. So let me just use, like, a, a, an everyday sort of example. My, say if my brother was to mess up and do something really terrible, he gets thrown in jail or something like that, right? I would say, well, that's... You know, that's my brother. He, you know, he's his own individual. That's his problem. I mean, to some extent, right? I'm, I'm not a callous and uncaring person. But, you know, that's, that's kind of how we, we go about it. It's like, look, you know, he's his own person. He, 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 that's him. But in ancient cultures, 
Like that reflected completely on the family. And I actually had to take responsibility for the things that my brother did. And that all of that shame would fall not just on my brother, but it would fall on the whole family. And not just mom and dad, but everybody, right? That's how it was. Now, to some extent, we get this in our own culture because, I mean, you know, like, if you think about really terrible atrocities, for some reason in my mind, when I was thinking about this, went to Sandy Hook Elementary, that the school shooting that happened there a number of years ago, and, you know, what happened was this, this mentally ill guy shoots all these people, and of course we say it's his responsibility, but right away the media and everybody pointed to the fact that it was also mom's responsibility because she didn't do anything about you know, some of the things that she'd seen, and it was the community's responsibility because he was known in the community, and they could have done, so it was, and so how could you not, right? There's, there's some responsibility there. But we have to keep this idea of this being a very non-individualistic culture in, in, our, in the forefront of our minds when we look at the scene of Abraham and Isaac. We also have to think about the fact that we have to think about the fact that the, the first son was hugely significant in a way that, that first sons are not the same, not like that today. Right? Maybe if you're a farming family, that's, I don't know how these things happen, but maybe the, the farm goes to the first son. I don't, I don't know how that works. But whatever the case, the son, all of the hopes of the family hung on that first son. Right? Hugely significant. The whole estate would be handed down to him. Okay? Now hold on a minute because we've got one more move to make here. Next we're going to go to Exodus 13. In verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me the firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. So, firstborn, man or animal, they belong to the Lord. Why? Well, it's not, so it's not to kill them, it's not to sacrifice them or anything like that, but they were supposed to be used in God's service permanently, Right? which for the family kind of amounted to the same sort of thing because he's not going to be around anymore. All their dreams are tied up in that firstborn. Now, later on in Leviticus, we find out that that family could buy back their firstborn son. You could redeem that firstborn son for a price. Now, we, of course, don't see the significance of this, but the ancient person, they saw it very, very clearly. When God asks for that firstborn son, and he asks Abraham for that firstborn son, what that means is that there is a debt that needs to be paid. On every family, on the face of the earth, there's a debt of sin. That something is owed to God for, for our sin. So you're beginning to see this? Okay, so back to Abraham. Abraham gets his culture. He knows all of this, this stuff. And so we're right at the pinnacle of this uh, uh, Genesis 22 story. And we're at this whole scene, verses 7 and 8. Isaac looks down, right? They're walking up, uh, verses 7 and 8. The, or, uh, Isaac looks down and it says, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac says, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Right, so now a lot of people look at this whole scene and they struggle with this, right? And then they think, you know, God is God. Can't God just let it go? Can't God just, can't he just like wipe the slate clean and, and, and forgive well, no, actually, he can't, because you think about this. Um, he can't just forgive without payment. And I want to make this personal so that you understand forgiveness here. Because I don't think we often do really understand it. Because what happens? 
When, when you do something to somebody else, you harm them in some way. What happens? I would suggest that you've kind of, you've, you've sort of taken something from them. And you owe them, you actually owe them a debt. This is why it says back in, in the, the Old Testament, it says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? And that, what, that debt that you owe that person for hurting that person, that cannot be ignored. There's only one, or there's only two ways, actually, to get rid of that debt. And the first way is, like if somebody has harmed you, the first way is, is to go after that person for what they've done. So this is the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth thing. If they've besmirched your reputation, you go after them and besmirch their reputation. Right? The Bible says if you do that, that's going to make you into kind of a hard person. Also, we're not very good at doing that. We usually take too much. Right? The other thing that you can do besides do that is to forgive. But what is forgiveness? You just think about this. What does it mean? that you, you're forgiving this person. What it means is you are swallowing that hurt, okay? If you want to hurt them, you don't hurt them. You want to you slice up their reputation, you don't slice up your, their reputation. You want to think hateful thoughts about them, you keep yourself from thinking hateful thoughts about them. You swallow it, and what that means is you are paying the debt. Do you see that? You're paying it down yourself, and it's costly, and it's difficult, but somebody has got to pay the debt, always. There is no just forgiving, right? Either you make the person pay, or you pay it yourself. There's no such thing as a wrong that isn't forgiven without real payment. Somebody's always got to pay. And so what that means is Abraham knows this. He knows that there is a debt that needs to be paid. And at the last minute, God says to Abraham, he says, don't do it. Don't do it. And God does provide. But do you know what happens? He doesn't provide a lamb. What is it? It's a ram caught in a thicket. And when I read that, I was like, you know what? That would never, ever happen to my F-150 getting caught in a thick thicket. It's truck humor, sorry. Uh, Anyhow, the, the ram caught in the thicket is actually, it, it, it's sacrificed more as a thank offering than, than anything else, uh, but there is a, there's a debt that's, that's being owed that's, that needs to be paid. God has the right to, to ask for that payment, but it doesn't actually get made, get made in this scene because a lamb is never sacrificed. So where's the lamb? Okay, just hold on to that question. Next chapter in this, this sort of like run through the Bible and the history of the lamb, Moses. And I, oh, we'll speed things up a little bit. Again, you know, God claims the right of the firstborn here. And or, so you're beginning to understand this, right? Uh, he says that your only hope is the lamb. Okay? Now, two things here. I want to draw your attention to verse 22. Here it is. Moses is telling the people to paint their doorposts with the blood of the lamb on the tops and on the sides. And he says, no one, not one of you shall go out the door uh, of his house until morning. And that goes by come almost, you know, we just sort of skate over that. Just, you know, why? But, but why does he say this? It's because this destroyer is no respecter of persons. He is not just coming for, for Egyptians. He is coming for everyone who doesn't sit under the blood of the Lamb. So if you're an Israelite and you don't have that, you're... Right? It doesn't matter about your ethnicity, it doesn't matter about your religion or your doctrine or your intelligence or the good things that you do. 
If you don't sit under the blood of the lamb, when the judgment comes, you're a goner. You think about what an amazing statement that is that Moses is making. Already way back then to the Israelites, right? So, so that, that's a, it's a level playing field. But there's also this. What, what's the hope? What's the hope? Right? In Egypt that night, think about this. In Egypt that night, there was either, everywhere, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. Everywhere. One or the other. In other words... The lamb got what the son deserved. The lamb paid the debt so that the son didn't have to. This is, we, we, we talk about this as substitutionary atonement. This is fundamental to our faith. And it's already, to the Christian faith, it's already here in the Old Testament. You see that? Think about if you were a first son. Just try to project yourself into that. Like, if you're a first son, first son and you are lo- you're sitting at that table, you're looking at that lamb, you are thinking to yourself, the only reason that I am sitting here is because that lamb is sitting there, right? Okay, but this isn't the last chapter in the history of the lamb because the Israelites, they, they've been saved, right? They've been saved or they will be saved, but this happens in a really physical way. And the blood of these lambs, it was never meant as an act of full salvation. It was just liberating them from, from Egypt. That's it. Physical, social maybe, that, that's it. And so then we get the next chapter of, of, of the lamb and Jesus Christ. Just before he, he goes to the cross, what, what happens? He goes up to the upper room with his disciples and he celebrates this Passover meal. And when he stands up, there's two things that, that would have shocked the disciples that Jesus does. Okay, so when he stands up, he is claiming, and, and you know, to, to say the words, he is claiming the place of the presider over the, the Passover meal. And the, usually that was the father of a household, and the presider's job was to tell the story of the Passover, to sell, tell the story of Israel's exit from Egypt and all of that stuff, and to explain the meal and what each of the parts of the meal represents. So Jesus is doing that, but what the the disciples would have expected is that when Jesus picks up the bread, Jesus should have said, he should have said, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we could be free. But instead, Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And what he's saying is, "This, this is the bread of my affliction." I am going to suffer to give you ultimate freedom from sin and death itself. It's my suffering that is going to be the ultimate liberation for you so that you never, ever have to know a minute away from God, so that you never, ever have to pay for your sins. So that's the first thing. Now, there's a second shock that comes that they would have seen. And that was the table itself. There's three things that you need in a Passover meal on the table. Um, One of them is the bread. We already talked about that. Another one is these four cups of wine. And the last thing is the lamb with the bitter herbs. But if you look back in every single one of the the stories that talks about Jesus celebrating the supper with the, the, the disciples in the upper room, there's not once where there's a lamb that's referred to. And I think that's that's very intentional. So the disciples are like, what, like, what's going on? There's no lamb. What kind of Passover is this? Right? 
Friends, there's no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table, right? Jesus is saying tonight, I am this lamb. My death is the central event of all of history. It is the the center of the center. Tonight, I am giving you ultimate salvation. It's yours. This is the night that is unlike all other nights. And that's why John the Baptist, when when he first even sees Jesus, this is in John 1, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was already saying, I get it. I get it. Those, those, our firstborn sons were, were not saved because of the death of some woolly little lamb. They were saved because God has given up his firstborn son. See, the answer to, to Abraham, God was saying to Abraham, I am, I am going to walk my son up that mountain, and I'm going to lay all the sin of the world on him, all of that debt on him, and there's not going to be anyone to say, Stop it. Don't do it. The one commentator put it this way. He said, when the ultimate beloved child cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' words from the cross, the father paid his price, paid the price in silence. Silence. Behold the perfect lamb, friends. John 19, 33, it, it points out that Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, that his legs weren't broken. Why? Well, because a a lamb, the perfect lamb for the Passover, it had to be without blemish and with unbroken legs. Matthew 27 says that when, when Jesus died, it was dark. It was like twilight. Why? Because the lamb was slain at twilight. And the first chapter of of the history of the Lamb said there's a debt, and Moses' chapter said said that there's a substitute that can pay for it, and Jesus' chapter said, it's me, it's me. I am the ultimate and the real substitute. I'm the one who stands in your place so that you can always have a place with God. Friends, behold him, the perfect Lamb. Look at him today. The, the lamb sacrificed for you, slain for you to take away all of your sin. All of it. And friends, if that doesn't grip your heart, then maybe nothing will. Well, here at Gateway, it is our sincere hope that you would be built up in your faith and in your walk before Christ through this message and every day as you study God's Word. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.